Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of what's sure to be by now at least your third favorite podcast, Just Friends. I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and this week we were joined in the studio by none other than our friend, the handsome and talented Mr. Gabe Pruitt. Gabe is another vestige of my time spent at Starbucks. I was actually really close friends with his wife, Kate, um, because we worked together there. And then through Kate, I was able to meet Gabe. And he has been one of those people whom I've admired from afar. Uh, He's a super talented guy. He's a great musician. You'll find out in this podcast that he is a phenomenal talker. And you'll also hear me say he's not terrible to look at either. Uh, But he's taken, ladies, so back off. No joke, this is probably one of the most fun conversations I've been able to have so far on Just Friends, and it's just because we kind of went off the rails a little bit. Gabe and I both seem to have similar interests, and we started talking about like artificial intelligence and what is consciousness and crazy stuff like that, things that I spend way too much of my time thinking about, and apparently Gabe also does. But once you get two people like that in the same room, especially in front of microphones, you know magic is going to happen. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and share the show with your friends and loved ones. Let them know what we're doing here at Just Friends. Send them over to the podcast website, justfriendspod.com, where they can buy merch. They can learn a little bit more about the show. They can listen to all the episodes past and current, and they can also find links there to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts, where they can become patrons. You heard me shout them out last week, but I'm going to do it again this week. Emily Brown, Emily Berry, Ryan Ray, Ben Risen, David Vandelberg, and Seth Jones. The greatest people in the world and the truest of true members of the Just Friends podcast community. And now without any more chatting, I am excited to introduce to you our friend, Mr. Gabe Pruitt. pretty neat i'll also keep my hands off the table <laughs> yeah these are not ideal but the road mics mm-hmm. or the road stands are like 99 bucks they are yeah so i'm not playing so when games. we were doing our podcast it was it was for our real estate branch and so it was completely underwritten by the company so we like that's why we got the procasters and we got the road stands and the zoo like we i think we spent like a thousand dollars just on gear before we even record our first episode which is the difference between like doing it yourself and doing it for for business so it was a different kind of journey but that's still really cool yeah it was definitely fun we learned a lot we learned we could have done it for much cheaper and had basically the same results yeah you can but it's really it's really a struggle because just having that information and just knowing what you need and what you don't need is hard to do. So for me in my personal life, the way it always works is I never get the cheapest thing when I want to start something because I usually want to start some new thing like once or twice a week, right? <laughs> so like either it, so like most recently it was like I wanted to get super into backpacking. That was something I wanted to do. You need to talk to my wife. You oh, would definitely I'm already over it, but it's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I went I went a few times and now I'm good. Uh, it was fun. It just wasn't a long-term thing. But, like, I wanted to buy all the gear, right? I needed to get a pack. I was like, I need at least a 30-liter pack. Did you get an Osprey? No, I didn't. I got one from REI, which okay. is, like, just as expensive. Oh, yeah. But I got, it, I got it during, like, the clearance thing last year. But, anyways, I never want the 
entry level stuff because I'm like, I'm not entry level. I'm not entering at the entry level. I want to like, and, and I never want the most expensive thing either, ever. Cause I'm like, I know that this is going to be temporary, you know, dollars to donuts. That's what I'm betting. So I always get like something that's just like right in the mid grade. But I do this, and I noticed this, and I was talking to friends about this the other day. I do the same thing with like, uh, if you're starting to learn something new, like if you download like a language learning app, or I'm trying to, especially if it's like learning an instrument, because I'm like, I never want to start. It's like, choose your difficulty level, right? Never, ever, no matter how inexperienced I am, will I pick beginner because I'm always like, I'm not a beginner. Like it's going to be too slow. I'm going to pick it up too fast. It's going to be a waste of my time. And I always start higher than I should. And I always get burned out because it's too hard. (laughs) And that's what I do all the time. So where did you go backpacking? We went, uh, it was in Indiana. Yeah. Hoosier National Forest. I think Mitchell. No, no. Mitchell Hill Lake is what's in Jefferson. Yeah. Um, which is, that's a cool hike too. If you've been to that little tiny lake, it's more like a pond, but um, oh yeah, I have done that. It's beautiful up there. It's really nice, very yeah. serene. But I'm trying to think where the place in Indiana was. It was in Hoosier National Forest for sure. And then we did Red River Gorge once too. What'd you do in Red River Gorge? We just did like the natural bridge. We did the natural bridge trail, and I'm trying to na- think of the name of the other trail that we did. But it was really easy. It was it was one that wasn't very challenging. Uh, well, there are challenging hikes out there, but it's good for climbing. Is what it's really good for. Yeah. And I've never done any climbing before. No, so. I've never done any climbing. Well, I guess sort of. Uh, there's this one hike that I've done twice that I would recommend to anybody who wants to like have an initial experience at Red River Gorge. Okay. And uh, it's you can kind of do both of these things on one hike, and one is called Indian Staircase, and the yeah. other is Cloud Splitter. Cloud Splitter. That, that's what I'm trying to think of. We yeah. didn't do it. But. Yeah. The reason that they're good, at least they were for me, they were perfect entry-level hikes. Because like I was saying, my wife, she backpacks a lot. She's done it in Europe. She's done it in South America. She's done like 100-mile trips. Okay. Um, and the reason this was good for me is because when I was a child, my dad left me in the woods by myself once. Very John Wayne. <laughs> I've told this story before, but it, it kind of tainted my, my experience when I feel like I'm lost, I tend to panic a little bit. Mm-hmm. So like I've, I've stayed away from like big backpacking trips, but I trust my wife. So like it's, I trust her like so she completely. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah. She's a very capable woman. And I trust her so completely that when I'm with her, I feel safe. And she took me on this hike. Indian Staircase is what we did first. And it was just the right level of challenging to where, like, I was afraid. Right. Like, I was like, if I fall, I could get seriously hurt. Seriously dead. <laughs> but this is within my scope of ability. It was, like, right in that perfect zone. I was like, and the the overall experience was really so cool once it was over with. I was like, man, this really gave me, like, a desire to want to do something like this again. Right. And then later, in that same hike, we came kind of around. And we got to what's called Cloud Splitter. And it's sort of the same thing. Like you, there's like a rope and it was just a little bit precarious. But I was like, I think I can pull this off. And then once I got up, basically you climb, it's mostly like a hike. But then once you get to the top of this huge hill, there's like this humongous rock. Okay, yeah. And you can use a rope to kind of climb up to the top of this rock. And once you get up there, you can see for just miles. Right, right. And so, you know, I'm standing on top of this rock, like, with, like, 40 feet of rock all around me, feeling like, oh, shit. You know, like, <laughs> like even though there's plenty of space, it's like, I'm going to fall. If I fall down, I'm going to land 30 feet from the edge of anything. But mm-hmm. I was, we were just so high up in the air, and it was just, like, right, just the perfect amount of scary, and then we were up well, there for kind of like what Natural Bridge feels like. I mean, like, you can go look over the edge, but even standing in the middle, you're like, I'm too close to the edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit scared of heights, just no matter what. Now, see, I, I tell people all the time that I 
that I like heights and I'm not, not afraid of heights. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I'm not really afraid of falling, which is weird to say because I haven't fallen a ton of times in my life, but it's like that sensation of falling is not naturally a really scary one to me, which is like, I think I would like skydiving. I think it would be really cool. Yeah. Because falling is more exhilarating than it is scary. So heights, I don't ever get that like kind of nauseous, I'm going to fall thing because I'm like, if I fall, I'm going to die. Like if it's high enough, it's whatever. So we're like, I'll just not fall and I'll be okay. I don't know. That doesn't make a ton of sense, but see when I'm, so it's interesting you say that because when I am standing on a high place, I feel in my stomach the sensation as if I'm falling. Mm. It's almost like in, when the fear kind of swells up and I'm feeling a little bit unstable, the butterflies. But then once I settle into it, I feel comfortable. So I feel like once, if I were to go skydiving, the challenge would be getting out the door. Mm-hmm. Then once I, I think that's true for probably most people, but Gotta once be. I'm falling... I would settle into the experience and then be able to enjoy myself. Exactly. But it wouldn't be fun right away, I don't know. <laughs> It'll probably be really scary. Well, see, it's so funny. I say this like I'm this big, tough guy, but you know what gives me the biggest, like, heebie-jeebies in my stomach? Are, do you play a lot of video games at all? Not a lot, but I enjoy them. I play Call of Duty Mobile. <laughs> okay, well, have you been in a video game where you're on top of something tall and then you jump off of it in the video game and it feels like you're falling? <laughs> like, I'll be if you're playing something like Call of Duty and you're on top of a building mm-hmm. and you just jump off the edge and you feel that like your stomach sucking up into the top of your body feeling like that that gets me every time every time i jump off of something in a game i'm like like i feel like i'm falling have you ever done vr experiences that have like plank challenges or anything like that no like like i've never done any like real vr like the oculus stuff and like that's like really immersive i've not done any of that yet i would like to that's what I did. It was on an Oculus Quest. So it's like the self-contained apparatus. I don't think it's quite as sophisticated as the Rift, mm-hmm. but you actually plug into like a high-end gaming PC. Yeah. This is kind of like a self-contained unit. Um, so the graphics were not convincing, but the scenario was convincing. Okay. And you felt like you were high up because you were immersed because your entire field of vision is this scene and it feels like you're in it and you walk out on that little ledge you're like oh shit Mm -hmm. but as is usually true you know like you can kind of logic your way out of that sensation well and it's just this is just proof that all this stuff is just happening in your brain Mm -hmm. right like if you can get the same sensation inside a vr headset as you can actually standing on something tall it's not the something tall that does it to you it's whatever it's whatever your brain is processing about the situation you're in so um, if you can if presumably if it can be turned on it can be turned off yeah I don't know. That's a good point. And presumably, if I can turn it off when I'm sitting in a VR screen, when I'm in the actual scenario, you should, I should be able be, to. Yeah. Risk that the, the stakes are a little bit higher. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm interested to hear, uh, you know, your perspective. You were talking about when you buy gear, you always like to go middle of the road. And I'm the same way when I want to buy new stuff, but I'm a little bit different. Okay. I will research for months. Mm. If I'm going to spend more than. 75 bucks. Yep. It's going to take probably like at least two months before I actually really settle into the decision to buy something. That's just kind of me personally. And uh, I kind of, it's, I'm cheap. All my friends make fun of me about it. They're like, Mitch, you don't like to spend money. And it's true. Well, it's not that I don't like to spend money because I really enjoy spending yeah. money. It feels great, but it's, uh, I like to spend money once. Yeah. <laughs> what makes me so mad is when I buy something and it's not what I needed and I have to buy something different to replace oh, I hate it. that too. That's why I do the research because I want to buy one time. I mm-hmm. want to buy the right thing the first time. It's exactly what I need, not more than I need, not less than I need, just the thing that I need the first time, done. 
Sometimes I'm even a little bit more superficial than that. And I'm just like, is this the thing that I'm going to be happy with? Good point. No, that's true too. I do that too. <laughs> that's funny. So I met you through your wife, Kate. Yep. Because we work together at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So immediately, you know, Dixie Highway, Starbucks, my assumption is that you grew up in the south end of Louisville. Would that be a correct yes. assumption? So if you think about where the Dixie Highway Starbucks is, I've probably lived within 10 miles of it my entire life minus a few months. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Me too. Honestly. Okay. Yeah. I live closer to it now than I did when I first started working there. Right. <laughs> so then exactly what neighborhood did you grow up? Did you go, did you like live in PRP your whole life? Did you go to Greenwood Elementary School? I didn't go to Greenwood. No, I went to Brandeis downtown. If you know where Brandeis is. But uh, I grew up, first house I grew up in was in Hunters Point. Okay, so right there on the Shively, the 40216, 40258 line, right? Where it's between Shively and PRP. And when I was, uh, before I was 10, sometime we moved into Park Ridge where my parents still live. So that was, I grew up around Iroquois Park. Iroquois Park was kind of my stomping grounds area for a long time. But then I lived there until Kate and I got married. And when we got married, we moved out to some apartments off of Blankenbaker. So you know where Southeast is and yeah. everything out there. Because that was close to work for me. We had our apartment there for a few months, started looking at houses. And this is this is no knock on PRP at all. Because like I said, I'm a PRP person for life. But it's like we were both we both grew up out here. And we were like, okay, we're just not moving back to PRP. We've lived out here in the East End. This is the closest we've ever been to a Whole Foods. Like, we're, we're living out here now, okay? Like, we're East Enders now. And so we're like, okay, well, let's find our first house out in the East End, which is something hilarious that people say when they have no idea how much houses cost. Uh, and so we looked nothing in our price range. We're like, okay, J-Town. We could be J-Town for J-Town's nice, people. bro. Yeah, sure it is. They got a feast right across the street from our Royals. Listen, feast and Royals. And you don't even have to go to Nulu. So we were like, this is what we're going to do. And, like, everything in our price range was, like, super, like like run down, like needed to be completely, like needed another hundred grand of renovations. And so we ended up getting moved out to like, um, like we didn't want to live in Butchel. Like we just, and nothing against these places. We just knew where we didn't want to live because we wanted to be close to certain things. Yeah. And it's just, we just kept getting forced closer and or farther and farther out. And then eventually we found our house, which is right off Blanton, which if you know, you know, Dixie, Blanton, it's like literally a stone's throw from that same Starbucks. Like I live right, like probably five minutes from it now. And it's so funny that it brings us back there where we started. But it was a perfect house, and it was super cheap. It was under our price range. We loved it. We're still there. We live there. Almost, this is five years this year that we've lived there. And we're probably going to move before too long. But it was, yeah, we just found our way right back to PRP. So that's where we've been our entire lives. Yeah, if you're from here, it's not hard to make that transition. No, our whole family's here. Yeah. yeah. My wife's not from here. She's from this. Uh, like she grew up in Oldham County mm-hmm. actually, um, and she's made the transition. Uh, but it was a little bit tough for her at first, I think. Gotta, gotta be. <laughs> it's just there's not that. It's like like I said, I love this place and it'll always be a part of part of me. But it's like there's just not that much stuff when you're used to being around stuff. Oh yeah, there's just not a ton of stuff out here, and it's not super pretty either. Like where she lives is beautiful. We'll drive mm. out there. And I'm like everything is fucking green. Yeah, look, there's a fountain. Look at that beautiful fountain in that person's like it's backyard. Like, and none of this stuff is broken. Like where's all your broken stuff? <laughs> That's hilarious. No, but unfortunately, yeah, we'll probably, uh, I don't think we, we plan to stay in the South End forever. Yeah. But I do feel such a strong connection to the South End of Louisville and the people that live here. I love them just because, I, I don't know, they, I, I see myself reflected in them. Yeah. Even in some of the, you know, the worst qualities. Like even when I'm like <laughs> driving, uh, you know, I'm going through a drive through and like some lady in front of me is like cussing out the barista. I'm like, you know what? I've sort of been that person at one point You've in my been life. both of those yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. You've been on both ends of that. I don't know. It's like it's like you said. There's a part of this. It's like 
It's not like I'm trying to run away. It's not like we live in small town USA and it's like the worst place ever and you're just like dying to get out. That's not what like the South End is like, but it's also not a forever kind of place. You know what I mean? Opportunities are elsewhere. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with wandering away from home as long as you don't like disown your people. You know yeah. what I mean? I kind of like to get a little further away from home for a little while at least, you know, mm-hmm. honestly try to check some stuff out. But you said you went to Brandeis. How in the world did you end up doing that? Was it just was it a choice? That's a great question, and I'm not 100% sure. At the time, and it might still be, it was like, and you got to think, this is early 2000s. This is like the year 2000. So it was a STEM magnet before there were STEM magnets, mm. right? Like it was the first kind of, uh, it was. I think it was kind of like an experiment for magnet schools in JCPS at the time. But their big thing was, you know, science, science, technology, math. Like that was their big thing. And so I think, you know, my mom worked downtown, like she's a lawyer and she worked downtown at the time. She's, I mean, she worked downtown for a long time, but it was, it was the most, um, convenient for her to pick me up and drop me off and everything on her way to work. And I think that's kind of where it started. It was a good school from what I remember. I mean, I was in elementary school. So, I mean, if, I mean, if I was safe, it was a good school, but yeah. Well, you know, also, I was just kind of thinking of it from the perspective of like, you have good parents. I've met your parents. They're Mm -hmm. just really nice people. And they are nice people. I had this conversation with my buddy Torrance. He's like, when you have great parents who are like going to make sure that you, your, their child has good values and that their child is learning stuff, putting them in more diverse environments mm-hmm. is a really good idea. And I feel like, you know, Brandeis being downtown, like it'd be a more diverse school. It was, yeah. And I wonder what, that, so like, what was that experience like for you coming up? And, you know, it's it's also, I hate to, to kind of carry on this train of thought, but it's like, you talked about math and STEM mm-hmm. and so many people who have been on this show have talked about like that being a big driving factor in their life. I think that was just something about like the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. But I don't think about that when I think about you, you know, and I don't think about it when I think about me either. <laughs> and like, it's so funny, like, cause when you talk about, you know, diversity in schools and STEM and stuff like that, looking back, there's tons of things that I think now um, as a result of being out of K through 12 for a long time. But I mean, when I was in elementary school, I didn't even have any sense that there was diversity in that school. You know, for me, that was my first experience, uh, you know, aside from preschool and kindergarten in a public school setting. So to me, that was just normal. I mean, that was just looking back, it was definitely a very diverse school, even compared to some of the schools that I went to later on, you know, but then it was just school, you know what I mean? So it was very, very normal. And I think, at at least some level, it was formative for me. It was very good to be in an environment like that. And and like you said, as far as it being a STEM school, I mean, that early on in my education, I'm, I couldn't, I, I can't tell you anything that really groundbreaking that I learned in elementary <laughs> school that's impacting me today. I Did was you always, learn to read there, bro? Yeah, I, I probably, <laughs> okay, good point, good point. Uh, what I'll say though is for me later on in life, I got more, I was way more interested in the arts than I was in anything real academic, which I really like learning. I really do. But I was just always bad in school. Always. Really? Yeah. And all the way through, all the way through high school, especially into college, like my education story is one of just constantly not measuring up. Like that's probably (laughs) how I would describe it. And it's because I was always way more interested in stuff that would never help me make money, which was, which was my biggest problem. At least that's what you thought. I think that's what like I thought. The, yeah. the internet has changed that a lot, dude. The internet is the only reason that I have a job right now. <laughs> so I mean, like it's a, uh, it's very. I'm very lucky to have the situation that I do now. But I think if anything, having like all of those experiences in school kind of like lit up curiosity for me, which has been the biggest thing that's helped me is curiosity. Not necessarily any like specific thing that I've learned. So, but but you're right. When I think about you, I think of arts. I think of music mostly, mm-hmm. and. 
I feel like I know where that started for you, but I'd kind of like to hear your story for how, how did that start for you? Where did you feel like you first became interested in music? And was that something, because when I think of you, I also think of a person who's just maybe innately talented mm, at stuff like that. Okay. I don't know. Here's what I would say. So music for me started not because of some like epiphany at a young age. I started playing guitar. That was my first instrument. I started playing when I was 10. Uh, and the reason was my my dad and a lot of my mom's side of the family all were invested in a family business that was here off uh, Tradeport, not far from where we are now. And it was called First Quality Musical Supplies, right? That was my grandfather's uh, family business and it had been around for a long time. It was a big Louisville staple for a long time too. But like half of my, more than half of my family worked there. Like that was where everybody worked. And so when I was in middle school, um, I got off the bus at First Quality Music. Like that was my bus stop because I would sit there with my dad and with my grandpa and my uncles. That's where we all were. And he would just bring me home when he finished work at like six o'clock. So instead of getting dropped off at home, I was getting dropped off at a music store every day for several years. So, I mean, you can't do that for too long without at least getting a little bit interested in wanting to play instruments. So like every day I'm spending multiple hours um, with like basically VIP access to a music store with guitars and banjos and all these things all over the wall. So didn't was, didn't you guys have a Luther there that built their own banjos for a while? Yeah, yeah. It was that was one of the things that was the main driving force of that business was building banjos. That was uh. kind of the centerpiece. And then there was a showroom and there was retail sales, kind of as an accessory for for the beginning of it for sure. Um, but you know, being around and I was around a ton of talented musicians too. Like all the people that worked there were also musicians yeah. for the most part. And it wasn't until um, later on in the business that they started doing music lessons there too, which is kind of what a lot of retail places will do. Eventually, they'll start lessons, you know, or they'll host lessons there where teachers can come and pay a fee. Anyways, that was something that happened. So as soon as that happened there, I was like, oh, wow, I've got to take music lessons. Because like, I, I you can only pick up so many guitars and like hold it in your hand and wonder and then just go like, bling, so many times before you need to learn how to really play it. So at 10 years old, I was thinking, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to take guitar lessons. That was not what I expected you to say. Well, see, this is what's interesting. That's where it started for me, and I was really bad at guitar at first, <laughs> as most as most beginning students are, but especially you know at 10 years old with a short attention span, which has been like the defining factor of my life, is my short attention span. But um, you know, it was tough. I, I struggled a lot because what I wanted was to be able to play a song really quickly, and I was really lucky because the teacher I had was one of the best he's passed away now, but he was a very, very, very proficient guitar player. And he had to change his style a lot to deal with me. And I'm very thankful he did because he was a very traditional, um, he would teach people the fundamentals of a guitar. Like that's where you start. Right. And I was just not having it. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to learn scales. I don't want to <laughs> learn like correct hand placement and all these different things. I was like, I want to play smoke on the water. Like that's what I want to be able to do. I want to be able to play the James Bond theme song. And he was like, okay. He's like, if that's what you want to learn, we're just going to learn it. And if you learn it wrong, he's like, we'll just if that's what will keep you interested, we'll fix these things over time. And that's what happened. I ended up taking lessons from from like four or five years, which is a long time to take lessons. But I mean, eventually they just turned into like jam sessions because I was there all the time. But I mean, he taught me that way so that I could play things that I knew badly. But at least I was proud of myself because I was like, I'm playing something I recognize and it feels good to know that I'm making progress. And over time, the technical skills and the doing things the right way, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, like that, that kind of came later on. And yeah. so that was huge for me to have someone invest their time in me, even though I was going completely against the grain of the way that they teach. And so now fast forward, I've been playing guitar 17, 18 years, and I've added on a handful of other instruments, but learning to play guitar that way influenced the way that I learn 
music now too. And like a lot of people talk about learning music by ear. And like I say that, but it's not really by ear. I feel like the way, and you might be the same way too. The way that I learn and internalize music is like, I hear it and I know, and I know what I'm hearing and I know what I'm trying to reproduce. And then I just figure it out. Right. It's not a struggle to figure out like, like if I hear something, I can tell what I'm hearing and how to recreate it. I just need to figure out the specifics. And so piano came after guitar and banjo eventually because I was in a big banjo family and it just kind of like spiraled out of control there. But maybe what you were thinking for me, where music really took off and where I started to develop was when I started playing in church. That was a big thing for me as I started uh, playing music in church. And that's where I really had to develop skills to play with other people. It wasn't about just kind of like um, being a soloist anymore, if that makes sense, or a hobbyist, I would say. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about the way you learn music because I, I don't relate to that, actually. Okay. I don't learn music or pick it up by sound or feel. Every once in a while, I'll stumble into something. Mm-hmm. But usually, I want the blueprints. Okay. I want to see the blueprints, and then I can feel it, and I can add. And I'm a good enough musician that once I've figured out what it feels like to play that song, I can I can carry on from there. Once I've seen the blueprints, um, I do think that that's probably just because I haven't played a ton. It hasn't been as much of a priority for me as it may have been for you. I didn't take lessons for a bunch of years, and honestly, I didn't really take playing my instrument super seriously ever, even okay. now. It's just been, I've been doing it for such a long time that I've kind of managed to get okay at it. Yeah. And, I, and I'll even say for like the amount of time that I've played guitar, almost two decades, which like that makes me feel really old to even yeah, say. Yeah, you're old, man, bro. <laughs> Anyways, but like playing guitar for that long, there's so much that I can learn. And I know it because there's stuff that like one of my big aspirations is to like really get better at playing jazz guitar. It's one of the styles that I'm very interested in. And it's just so difficult for me. Yeah, the because, chords are crazy. And like soloing, I've never, I've always been a rhythm guitar player for guitar people out there. Like never a lead player because that getting like lead licks and stuff under my fingers takes a lot of work. Comping is like my sweet spot. Like I can hear, I could like throw myself into any group. Like this is one, like I'm not like bragging on myself because there's tons of things I can't do. But like the thing that I can do is if people are playing in a group and they need someone to just like jump in immediately and start playing without looking at something, like that's what I can do. I can start adding to the musical conversation with what I know how to do and fit in, but not like take over the lead line and start running things. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. See, I'm the guy who's like, you guys tell me what I need to learn mm. and I'll put the work in and figure it out and I'll be ready to go when I get there. But if we have to improvise too much, I just don't feel comfortable with that because I haven't spent enough time with my instrument to get that familiar with. Gotcha. gotcha. So I'm not fluent. I'm not fluent in the language um, and I'm not even conversational <laughs> but i am but i'll show up ready to talk yeah <laughs> if you know what i mean it's not and i would i wouldn't even say that what i'm most comfortable with is um like improv like you know imp- improvisation in music because that's not even really what i feel like th- is the sweet spot for me but it's like um i know how to i can pick up on what i'm hearing and like and i said that before but it's like when i'm hearing a certain chord progression like i can hear a song that i've never heard before and start playing along to it in a kind of basic sucky way really quickly. Because like I know, like if I can hear the first two or three chords, I can know what pattern it's going to follow for the rest of the song. And I am and like, I know if I hear these three chords, like if I hear E, A, and D, then I know that I better have like an F sharp minor ready to go and a B ready to go just in case. That's and music like, theory. Right. And so like there's some theory that I have like baked in, even though I never really studied theory. I think it's just like after playing for so long, and especially playing in groups for so long, because like, way more I've never really 
even attempted to do something with my music on my own, I've always played in groups. And so from playing in groups like that, there's, and playing so many different types of music, like I've picked up on enough theory that I'm like, oh, I know where to go. Like if we start going somewhere, I'm going to be able to fall. I'm not going to get lost. Like if I know what key we're in, we're going to be okay. So see, I feel like I'm at a place in my life where like, if I had a reason to learn all that stuff, I definitely could and would. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm I'm learning about podcasting right now. I'll, I'll you know like it's one of those things. Yeah. But I I wish I did have. I have a buddy who plays out. He goes out and he's like gigging. Yeah, yeah. And and it's like small little things. We went and saw him the other day, and like literally when we left, there was kind of nobody else there. So I was kind of like, mm-hmm. but it was like nine thirty. So I was like, we gotta get out of here, bro. <laughs> um, but I would I would enjoy doing something like that, playing to an empty room. Yeah. But you know something, I probably will someday. It's yeah. probably something that I'm gonna do someday. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but you're right. You know, I was kind of expecting you to talk a little bit more about church when you were talking about like how you got into music. Cause I know that's a big part of what you do now and that's a big part of who you are. Well, that's how I got into music. Seriously. That's what I'd say. It's definitely not how I got exposed to music. I gotcha. got exposed to music by force. Like I was locked in a room with guitars for a large part of my childhood. So it happened inevitably, but, um, being in it, in a space where, cause I mean, playing in church is a lot different than gigging too. Cause I mean, I've done a little bit of gigging in the past, but playing in church, I mean, at least for most people and, it, and there's no right or wrong way, but it's like, for me, when I was growing up, I had a big instilled part of me that was like, I wanted to impress people with my ability. Like it was very superficial. My music was very superficial and like picking up a guitar for the first time was very superficial. I wanted to impress people. I wanted to impress girls, right? I wanted people to be like, look, I can play guitar and that makes me cool. And so you can only do that at church for so long before you realize that's not the point, right? And so, especially when other people are relying on you, and, and not everybody that's listening is going to necessarily resonate with this, and that's okay. But uh, for me, when when I got in church, not only did I get better at my music through a lot of practice, but I got a, with a bunch of people who I could see music was not just like a hobby for them. It's something that would they were gifted at, like people that were way better than me. And even with all of that ability, instead of using it to draw attention to themselves, they were using it for something that they were much more passionate about. They were giving their ability. And that was something that became way more attractive to me in the future. And so, like you said, if there was a reason for you to delve deeper and to learn all of this stuff, you would. For me, that was the reason. Like once I figured out like this is a way that I can serve, this is a way that I can serve others, this is a way that I can be useful this is a way that I can make this about more than just myself. It gave me the reason to really commit. And that's when I started like digging into music. And I think that's really the reason I stuck with it because otherwise it would have been just like all the other things that I get really excited about for a few months and then stop doing. It's one of the very, very few things in my life that I've carried on for as long as I have, as far as like a, a thing that I do, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's why you're good at it. You know, this is kind of, I think where you and I differ because at the beginning for music for me also was just like a superficial thing. It was something Mm -hmm. I was interested in doing because I wanted that to be a thing about myself that other people admired that I could play music. Um, and then I started playing for church and that trend, that full transition of doing it for a bigger reason never fully clicked for me. And then eventually, I don't know if you know this about me, but I kind of realized that I was being disingenuous by playing music. At church, I think I think a lot of people struggle with that at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially if that's not why they got into music, which for very few people, most I don't think there's a ton of people that feel drawn to worship as like their ministry, as the way they want to minister to others, and they say, "I've got to learn an instrument." Stat. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't. I think it's the opposite. People have musical ability, and they say, "Oh, I have the opportunity to lead th- people through worship because this is something that I already possess as a skill." 
So for a lot of people, there's that imposter syndrome that's like, am I really doing this for the right reasons? Well, for me, I was genuinely an imposter because I'm definitely, I don't (laughs) identify as a Christian anymore. It's not something that's a part of who I am as a person. And I still really super value all of the relationships that I built in the church. And like, uh, I don't think negatively about anybody who's a Christian. In fact, like I encourage people, like if that's how you feel and that's how you want to spend your life and invest, like find an awesome church and a great group of people who are going to challenge you to be better and are going to hold you accountable and who you can invest in and do the same thing for them. Yeah. I'm all about that. That just doesn't work for me. It's, I'm, it's different for me. Yeah. Uh, so like, that's kind of why I had to leave. I was like, I'm standing up here pretending to be this thing that I'm, I definitely am not, especially mm-hmm. not right now. And I don't, th- I don't think I will be again, if I'm being honest. Okay. And that's also kind of why, like, it's interesting to talk to other people who, like, know me as a Christian, but, like, haven't spent time with me in a long time because I've changed so much. Sure. But I know that's a big part of your life, and I think it's really cool. And yeah. also, dude, you're really good at it. Well, like, you're talented, you. man. And that's a really interesting thing. And I, I'm really interested in that process of growing and how you get better at something. And that's... That's something that I look to you and I think, you know, this person's a person who's gotten really good at this. So you must have spent a ton of time investing in it and learning about it. I'm not like at some kind of prodigy level or anything. And it's like I said, there's tons of facets of music that are just still like super alien to me. But the thing that I do, I feel like I'm really good at that thing. And I've figured out how to make myself useful doing it. And so it's like you said, it's just doing it over time. I've just done it for a long time now. Yeah. And also it's kind of like once you know you know what you don't know. Yeah. And you realize like, oh my God, there's so much more that I don't know than right. I know. And that that's uh, that's true about all things. And man, I'll say this too about playing in church. It's um, it's like you said, every, I was saying like everyone has an imposter moment. And for some people, it sticks. And for other people, it's like something that you're constantly dealing with. For me, it's like something I'm constantly dealing with. Because I went from a small-ish church. Small-ish is, I don't even know how you describe it. But, you know, like 400, 500 people. I'm familiar with that church. I've been there with you before. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's here in the area. And, like, for me, that that church has always been a huge part of my life. I was there since I was born. Like, literally. Like, probably as soon as I was able to, like, be out in public as an infant, I was probably in church that Sunday at that church. And that's where I was until right before or, like, right after Kate and I got married, which I was 22 and I got married. Right? So... 20, 20 plus years in the same church. Uh, and it's like most people, and I'm like sure you probably had experiences like this too. Once you are in the kind of that age where you're an adult and you're really out there on your own, not only do you kind of reshape the way you think about the world and your place in it, but you really start to rethink things about your faith, especially, especially if you're brought up in a, uh, in faith, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people, I was, when I was growing up and not to turn this into a whole thing about church, but like when I was growing up, I met a ton of people that didn't get into their Christian life until later in their life, like post-adolescent, post-adolescent. And that was so weird, not weird. It was so different for me because I was basically born a Christian. That's not possible. That's not how Christianity works. But like for me, it felt that way. Like I was immersed in church culture from day one. You know, it was like the moment I hit the ground. So for me, especially in teenage years, Lots of doubts, lots of thinking like, is, do I really believe this or is this, this just where all my friends are, where all my mentors are, what my parents have taught me, what my family thinks? Is, is there any part of like my actual identity here or is this just the place that I spend a lot of time? You know what I mean? So that was, a, that's not something that's unique to me. I think a lot of people go through that. 
And then again, it happened for me as an adult because I started to see things that I'd never seen that kind of happened in church, the church, like corporate church in America, especially is kind of one of those weird things. It's like, it's not always rainbows and roses and it's just not always pretty. And it's like people run the church and people and people suck sometimes, you know what I mean? And so I think a lot of people have really negative church experiences that inform their Christianity view, right? Which I think is fair. I think if we're not going to hold Christians accountable for telling people what Christianity is about, then that's not exactly fair, right? I don't think there's any problem with people thinking what they think about Christianity because of their experience with other Christians. But especially for me, there was just some stuff happening at our church that was just really, it was just a really toxic time around the time that we left. And we ended up leaving. And it was so hard for me because, I mean, I'd been there for 20 something years. You're leaving and, your tribe, basically. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it's like, even as a young a young man being there, um, I was in a position of not leadership, but oh, of, totally, of yeah. a lot of um, visibility, mm-hmm. right? I was leading worship there every week. Um, not that I was like a huge important piece of what was happening there, because obviously, I mean, like they were fine after I left. But for me, it was hard for me to justify walking away from that place once I felt uncomfortable there, because I was like, am I betraying all these people who have invested in me, who have given me this opportunity, that have given me a chance, uh, that have like trusted me to lead them and to worship with them and minister to them? And it was hard. It was hard for me to walk away. But I mean, Kate and I being newly married and we talked about it and we decided like, this is not a, this place is toxic to our faith. Like this is going to start changing the way that we think about our relationship as Christians, if we stay here, because it's, because it's so far away from what we actually believe. And so we had to make the harder decision to step away. And it was, it was a hard decision, but it was the right decision for sure. But what, what I'm getting at and how this ties back to music is on the flip side of that, we ended up going to a church that averages, you know, in a service, 2000 people. Okay. So much bigger church, more in the like mega church world. I think you can call it a mega church pretty honestly. I mean, it's like, Big, big church where it's like on a weekend, you're looking at, you know, between five and 6,000 people. Yeah. And when are, you think about, so like, let's, let me give some context to the listener. Cause I kind of know what you're saying. Like you're yeah. not talking about the building. You're talking about this body. You're talking about this community of people. So, right. so even all those people not, might not be coming to one location, but they're coming to multiple locations around the city. And well, stuff. this is one location. Oh wow. So it's just really big. And okay. it's in India. Yeah. It's just a big <laughs> church. And so when you scale up like that in the, in a, church setting everything scales up and like production values scales up and like when you're when you're you're not a performer okay you never want to get confused and think that you're a performer when you're leading worship but the performance like the the uh, production value definitely increases and steps up i mean like the equipment that we're using the amount of practice that goes into putting on a service uh and all those different things for someone who's not 100 percent locked in on their purpose it's very easy to think that you're up there to perform to a crowd of thousands of people, which seems like a huge deal. You know what I mean? And I guess if you think about it, it can be a huge deal if you're someone who's trying to show that you are a musician and an artist, but that's not what that place is for, right? So, but inevitably, all normal human beings, when they're in that situation, have to do the dance of, am I doing this for me? Because I like people seeing me play and sing because I sing too. Do I, do I do this because I like that? Or do I do this because this is what I feel called to do? And for me, I mean, it's been a part of the story of my entire life. So that's, that's what I feel called to do. That's how I feel like I minister to other people. I've had tons of relationships start that way that really make me feel like this is what I'm doing to um, be useful to people. Because there's tons about that. Like, because you, I mean, you're talking about, and I don't know the specifics. It's like you said, it's news to me. I, what your negative experiences with the church and what made oh, you walk away. negative. 
Nothing negative. Okay. I love my Christian friends and and the family of people that I was with at the church. I just I don't agree with their point of view anymore. Okay. Yeah. That's all it is. Well, see, one of the biggest reasons that I ended up leaving the church I was at is I figured out there were so many people in leadership that had views that I could not reconcile. You know what I mean? Just things that I couldn't couldn't sit with. And even now, and even in the communities that I'm in, there are tons of people who are also, it's like you said, uh, you said something a second ago. It's like, you're not, I'm not mad at anyone who's like, because they're Christian or anything. I can think of tons of Christians that I just, I just really think are gross. And that's a really hard thing to say because I'm also a Christian and uh, you know, and I hate feeling that way about people, but there are people with views and ideas and stuff that I think are just really like really troubling. And I, and I know that I'm not perfect and I definitely don't think that I'm perfect or that I've got it all figured out. But what I'm pursuing is not some kind of, um, to fit into some societal box where, oh, that guy's obviously a Christian because he does this. He doesn't do that. He votes for this person. He agrees with this. He disagrees with that. So he must be a Christian. I try to let people know that I'm a Christian by the things that I do for other people, the way that I show up for people, the way that I live my life, the way that I love on people, and especially the things that I speak out against too, you know? And I think that's one of the hardest things for Christians to do because it's so tribal, right? You know what I say? Like when you find your tribe, you're saying something about that. Uh, it's really hard to buck the trend sometimes because I think that a lot of times, especially within the church, within the American church, there are these tribes that form. And at first it's all good. It's all things that you agree with, but all of a sudden the cost of membership is you also have to tack on this one thing that kind of makes you feel icky, but it's like, this is what everyone here believes. So I'm just going to stay quiet about it. And what happens is as those things coalesce over time, you start to find yourself a part of a body that doesn't line up with what you believe. And it's really hard to be the one dissenter in a room full of people who seem to agree. And I think, and at least from my experience, more often than not, not everyone agrees on all the things that are happening. People need to hear and be questioned and be challenged. And I think a lot of people in church environments are afraid to challenge and are afraid to ask questions, are afraid to be seen as doubters. And I think that's the most important thing you can do as a Christian is challenge people's beliefs and ask them, why do we think this? You know what I mean? Because if it, if it bears out, if there's a reason to believe it, if there's something in your faith that can back it up, then it will be there and it will be revealed. But I think that's the only way you start weeding out things that don't belong in the church. Yeah. I think of it more, I do think of it as being tribal, um, but I don't think that's negative. You need your tribe. You sure. need that group of people who you can plug into and that you can connect with and who are going to lift you up and make you better. Mm-hmm. And so like reconciling your beliefs with that group of people's beliefs is super important. And if you can do that, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of, I can kind of relate to how you feel like you, you do have people who say they're Christians and you, there are even people who do that, like in the media who then their behavior does not represent the values that, that you apply to that title. Absolutely. And I know that I do that often too, yeah. which, is the, which is the internal struggle. Not to the degree that sometimes, or I'd like to think, not to the degree that I see other people do it. But I know that I, I proudly tell people that I am a Christian and I'm happy to have that conversation with people and talk to them about what that has been like in my life and why I'm still a Christian and you know why I believe that I always will be. Um, but you know, I definitely catch myself all the time thinking like, wow, this is not a good look. <laughs> yeah. not, not a good look, G. Like definitely need a reverse course here. Yeah. And I think part of that's part of not just the Christian experience, but the human experience. But part of what, I mean, at least my faith is, is to me is a way to constantly keep myself in check. Not like slap myself on the wrist because I did 
did this thing that will look bad to my fellow tribe members, like you said, but it's like, like, it's like such a cliche, but it's like really check your heart and be like, am I in the right place right now doing the right thing, thinking the right things, saying the right things, living the right way? Uh, and if I'm not, am I more comfortable doing it this way? And if I am, that's something that I really need to ask myself, where, where do I want to be? You know, how, how do I want to be? So, yeah, that's something that's great about, about corporate religion that when people use it well, they use the tool. And I know so many people who do, who really use it as a tool to check themselves and make sure that they're living up to the standards that they believe that they're supposed to be living to. And it makes them better people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can also relate to uh, those situations where that, that means that they also accept ways of thinking that aren't necessarily going to move us forward as a, as a nation in a positive direction Mm -hmm. or stuff like that. But I guess for me, I don't know, it's just hard. I just, the fundamentals of what Christianity are and what, what the fundamentals of Christianity, the things that you have to believe to be a member. Sure. That doesn't work for me. So that's what I'm not doing. We're not going to make this entire conversation about this, but if you would, what's one of the big, I'm not going to like sit here and debate you. We're not going to do like Bill Nye versus the Noah's Ark guy. Like that's not what we're going to do. But like, what's one, I'm just curious, like what's one of the big things that really kind of informed you this way that kind of had that shift for you I all I, so it's kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier like math and science mm-hmm. i'm a math and science guy sort of for sure and so like over time i started to understand math um, as i studied calculus and then like uh differential equations and linear algebra and i started to see how like these are models for the world in which we live so so things like creation mm-hmm. i struggle with that but to be perfectly honest, like I, I haven't replaced it with a with a better answer, really. Like I don't know what consciousness is, or or what I am, or what my purpose is. I, a, I mean, I I could talk about that forever too. I love just the entire idea of just consciousness and what part of us is. Anyways, I like that's a whole other conversation for next. But well, it, I know let's go into it now because it's it's a great conversation. Like when I try to I try to understand consciousness, I think about it. I, I'm really interested in. The reproduction of consciousness. There's this guy I like to listen. I've listened to him talk for a couple of hours on different like lectures. His name is Ben Gertzel. Okay. He's way too smart <laughs> for me to really understand anything that I'm hearing when he talks. But, but you're he, getting pieces. Yeah. yeah. But he works for this company called Singularity Net in Hong Kong. And they're basically trying to create... um, Like AI? Moral AI. He's like, we've already got AI... It's what influences the algorithms on social media. It's what, you know, um, maps out train tracks from drones flying over. It it can tell the difference between regular ground and train tracks. But we have this very narrow AI. It can only do some things really good. Right. It can determine what you're going to click on really, really well for Mm, social media. Predictive. Yeah. Yeah. Or it can tell the difference between a a patch of train track and a patch of grass on a piece of picture. Yes, exactly. But we do not have this general artificial intelligence that's able to artificial consciousness. Well, even consciousness. I mean, consciousness is a totally different thing than intelligence. I'm not really sure that we're ever going to be able to develop an artificial intelligence that has 